0: you're listening to on human rights where we bring you interviews with experts and others about human rights and international humanitarian law on human rights is broadcasted from the ralph wallenberg institute of human rights and international humanitarian law in lund sweden i'm sandra jacobsen this podcast is presented to you by professor michelle page at Roskilde university who in this episode takes a look at the EU-Turkey deal and its consequences for especially refugee children. This lecture is part of a series of human rights-related lectures, so-called Wednesday Night Rights, which the institute is co-organizing with the Association of Foreign Affairs at Lund University. And this lecture was presented under the title The EU as a Force for Good in Human Rights Issues.
1: Enjoy. Thank you. Can you hear me at the back? Super. So I start by thanking you for this invitation. Um, I also think it's quite important to have this discussion uh, at the times that we're living. So um, we're actually going to be discussing quite a depressive topic. So I apologize for that. But um, I'll start with a quote from Agambe. Refugees represent such a disquieting element in the order of the modern nation state. This is above all, Because by breaking the continuity between men and citizen, nativity and nationality, they put the original fiction of modern sovereignty in crisis. And that sums up the gist of my talk today. And in writing this, I have to say that um, it spends a very important part of um, my working life and reflects the impact of relationships that extended beyond my work. And this contribution in particular was no exception. Ever since that day in September 2015, when I witnessed at first hand refugee families arriving at Copenhagen Central Station and the number of children and minors with them, I have been engaged in a research project that focuses on the needs of these children. The expression on their faces at the time said it all. Sheer exhaustion from the long journeys they had endured, But at the same time, a huge sigh of relief. Finally, they had reached a destination of safety. In Denmark, where I now reside as an economic migrant myself, 41% of asylum seekers arriving in 2016 were children under 18 years. Around one out of four asylum seekers was actually an unaccompanied minor. But this moment of relief that I witnessed in the eyes of minors at Copenhagen Central Station back in September 2015, has been since clouded with the devastating news, and I also witnessed this, of refugee children self-harming, suffering from very high levels of anxiety and depression, as well as displaying aggressive behavior. As a result, some have argued that it is the EU-Turkey agreement signed in March 2016 that has led to the rapid degradation of the conditions for refugees, not just on the Greek islands, but also in other parts across Europe. This presentation therefore focuses on the EU-Turkey deal and specifically on its impact on refugee children. I acknowledge that the EU finds itself in a long-lasting moral conundrum when dealing with, on the one hand, what has been the most pressing issue for European citizens since the first half of 2016, migration flows, and on the other hand, its ethical and legal obligations, but also those of its member states under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. This conundrum is getting even more challenging to resolve with the attempted July 2016 coup in Turkey and Erdogan's authoritarian responses to his opponents ever since the coup attempt. So my presentation will be as follows. I will first explain this conundrum that arose from the increasing number of children on the move, especially from Syria to Europe, and the dilemmas that this process has created for EU migration policy making in general. Thereafter, I will examine specifically the EU-Turkey deal and its ramifications for these children. This will include details on the humanitarian crisis that refugee minors have been experiencing and facing, especially in the last year or so. I frame the situation we find ourselves in today in terms of gamba state of exception. I conclude with some reflections on the limits and rapid deterioration in global human rights and ways in which these vulnerable human beings can be dealt with in a more humane way. So we'll start with children on the move. At the end of May 2016, humanitarian groups revealed that children as young as nine were risking their lives in desperate attempts to reach Europe as the number of unaccompanied child refugees arriving on smugglers' boats soared. More than a third of almost 200,000 migrants to have reached Greece, Italy and Spain for the first five months of the year 2016 were under 18 years of age. And aid groups already then started to raise alarms of a worrying new trend. These included concerns about the condition of housing for refugee children in Greece, where they were being confined as part of the EU-Turkey deal, which has meant that any refugees arriving clandestinely in Greece have to be detained and deported back across the Aegean if their asylum applications fail. Although Italy is not subject to the terms of the EU deal with Turkey, Save the Children has been calling for Italian authorities to provide appropriate accommodation for refugee children separate from adults emphasizing the unique set of rights of children and their need for specialist care to recover from their horrific journeys. Since the controversial EU-Turkey deal dramatically lowered crossings over the Aegean Sea, Syrian refugees in particular have been seeking alternative routes and returning to the treacherous Libyan route. Since the start of the so-called refugee crisis, this route has become the deadliest sea crossing in the world, with almost 3,000 people dying in 2015, when compared to approximately 800 on the shorter passage between Turkey and Greece. In Europe as a whole, during 2015, of the over 1 million people who arrived by sea, 31% were children. Trends indicated that the number of children among sea arrivals was on the increase, from 16% in June 2015 to 35% in April 2016. This kind of scenario split the EU member states into two camps. Those member states like Hungary, who wanted to opt for a tight EU border security regime, which marks the rapid institutionalisation of fear, of anxiety and unease. These fear-based migration control policies include the militarization of land and sea borders in order to stop irregular migration before migrants reach EU member states territorial waters. Other member states, at least initially, like Sweden and Germany, called for humane and compassionate responses in European border security management, including save and rescue operations in the Mediterranean Sea. The European Commission initially provided financial support for the operations with 1.8 million euros from the External Borders Fund. The operation, entitled Mare Nostrum, our sea, was operated by the Italian Navy, with ships operating near the coast of Libya. Although the operation saved thousands of lives, they were politically unpopular and considered highly costly for just one EU member state. The Italian government wanted to continue the operations and requested additional funding from the other EU member states, but this support was declined. The quagmire that the EU found itself in was very clear from the start of this crisis. How to combine an effective mechanism that can control EU member states' external land and sea borders while at the same time respecting existing international and EU refugee law? The objective was very clear, to deter irregular migration. At the same time, there was a priority, especially for some member states, to treat asylum seekers respectfully and in a dignified, humane way. In order to have a credible policy on asylum and border management, and as an organization based on normative principles, the EU is expected to respect the fundamental ethical norm of the rule of rescue. Not to push individuals in need into danger, which is at the heart of the UN Convention, the Refugee Convention, and its key Article 33 on no pushbacks or non refoulement. While all refugees fleeing war and other crises face risks, children especially have experienced rights violations at every stage of their traumatic journeys. Beatings by smugglers, extortion, and exploitation amongst other assaults. Unaccompanied minors are amongst the most vulnerable groups in this case. As already mentioned, throughout this mass migration to and from Europe, there have been significant differences and alarming gaps in humanitarian intervention on the one hand and border control on the other. However, humanitarian border work at European political level has been far from adequate and often left to several NGOs such as Médecins Sans Frontières. This situation for refugees, particularly for vulnerable young refugees, has become even more precarious and complex since March 18, 2016, when the EU and Turkey announced a highly politicised plan to reduce the flow of refugees into Europe. So what's the deal about the deal? In the midst of the so-called refugee crisis, the 28 EU heads of state forged a deal with Turkey that in principle is aimed at addressing the flow of smuggled migrants and asylum seekers traveling across the Aegean from Turkey to the Greek islands. The deal allows Greece to return to Turkey all new irregular migrants arriving after March 28, 2016. Greek authorities were required to set up new expedited processes to receive, review, and assess claims for asylum. In exchange, that's why we have a deal, EU member states agreed to increase resettlement of Syrian refugees residing in Turkey, accelerate visa liberalization for Turkish nationals, and boost existing financial support for Turkey's refugee population. Moreover, from its part, Turkey receives money for keeping the bulk of refugees in Turkey, an additional 3 billion euros of aid for Turkey to supplement the already existing 3 billion euros previously promised, to help the country cope with its existing refugee population plus a host of political concessions. At the time of the EU-Turkey agreement, Greece, as you might recall, had already been overwhelmed, not just by refugee influx for almost a year, but a crippling economic crisis. Yet, its government and people responded to refugees with generosity and in a humane manner. In her book, Cast Away, author MacDonald Gibson describes how Greek army sergeant Antonius Deligiorgis on one of his off-duty days saved many refugee lives by grabbing their threshed bodies and dragging them through the water onto the shore, including children, women, and an old man missing a leg when their ship was wrecked. The EU-Turkey deal, however, placed Greece in a very difficult position. Just before the deal was formulated, Macedonia closed its border with Greece, and every country along the Balkan route followed suit. At the time, Around 50,000 refugees were left stranded in Greece, and the EU-Turkey deal ensured that most of these refugees, half of whom were women and children, would remain stranded in Greece for many months. For many of these vulnerable groups, the provision of the EU-Turkey deal and the closure of borders crushed any hope that they may have had that they would be able to reunite with their loved ones who had already reached Western Europe. Aid agencies officials in Greece informed me that municipal and national authorities, as well as the Ministry of Interior, the Greek military and other state institutions responsible for handling the refugee affairs, had been poorly equipped to implement the EU-Turkey deal. With the EU-Turkey Pact, Greece was forced to shift from a transit country to a host country attempting to manage a fast-growing humanitarian crisis and to offer legal protection on a large scale. As mentioned, the plan includes the readmission of irregular migrants to Turkey. The EU Asylum Procedures Directive requires that a person can only be readmitted to a safe third country, which can guarantee effective access to protection According to the plan, Turkey can be regarded as a safe third country, but all 28 member states of the EU do not consider Turkey to be a third safe country. In fact, as of December 2016 and since the deal, only 750 asylum seekers were sent back from Greece to Turkey because Greek officials and courts consider Turkey to be an unsafe third country. Orkun Ulusoy, who is a lawyer, argues that deeming Turkey as a safe third country is highly problematic. He cites events in Askal, a small remote town in the east of Turkey, which hosts a so-called deportation center for irregular migrants. Unlawful practices of staff working at this center, including access to clients being arbitrarily blocked, clients' asylum applications being denied without proper examination, minors being kept in isolated cells without access to family members, and possible cases of ill-treatment and even torture have been reported by local Turkish lawyers. Just to remind us, in 2013, the Turkish parliament adopted the law on foreign and international protection. With the support of all political parties represented in the Turkish parliament the law came into force in April 2014. In line with EU legislation the law grants all basic human rights to migrants, asylum seekers and refugees including access to legal counselling and a lawyer, prohibition of torture and ill-treatment, extended protection and rights for minors. Yet in spite of official complaints about staff practices at centres lodged by lawyers and NGO officials, in practice the law is unable to guarantee basic rights for asylum seekers, refugees and migrants in Turkey. Moreover, the Women's Refugee Commission has carried out a series of assessments to analyse the impact of the EU-Turkey deal specifically on refugee women and children. Their mission was undertaken both in Greece and Turkey to investigate the situation for these vulnerable groups who were returned to Turkey from Greece. These visits were undertaken in May and June 2016. Although a small number of refugees were returned to Turkey by that time, the Women's Refugee Commission team faced restricted access to sites where refugees were detained or housed. Their report is quite shocking. It highlights troubling implications of the EU-Turkey agreement for the rights and protection of refugee women and children who have returned to Turkey. According to this report, the EU-Turkey deal led to centres with appalling conditions for refugees. The Women Refugee Commission researchers record statements by refugees they interview describing these centres as filthy, frightening and with degrading conditions frequently patrolled by ruthless site managers and police officers. They also chronicle various accounts of drunk, angry and frustrated men in these centres starting fights, while women and children are confined to their tents for safety. The report also refers to insufficient and very poor quality food supplies, with hardly any nutritional value, scenes of refugees queuing sometimes for up to hours, with no guarantee that they would get food when supplies ran out. Some even went three to four days without eating. There were no exceptions for children, the sick, the elderly, disabled or pregnant women. Furthermore, during the same month that the EU-Turkey deal was signed, Turkish police and soldiers seized the headquarters of Turkish newspaper Zaman, a traditionally anti-government newspaper. Why am I saying all this? For me, it leads us to a very important question. How is it possible that the EU came to forge an agreement on the lives of vulnerable human beings with such a regime? The EU maintains that this deal is necessary, it's legal, and respects the refugee laws and the principles of non refoulement and must be pursued. From the EU's point of view, and technically, The EU-Turkey agreement has been having the effect of decreasing the number of new arrivals on the Greek islands. I argue otherwise. The EU, as a self-proclaimed liberal democratic regime, has in practice undermined the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees through its signing of its agreement with Turkey. The extraterritorial processing of refugees marks a struggle between EU avoidance strategies or restrictive migration policies and the legal and moral imperatives of carrying out obligations of the 1951 Refugee Convention, which is enshrined in EU law and in EU legal space through the Lisbon Treaty. In the face of the self-constructed image of the EU as a normative global actor and the realities of global migration flows, the limits of non reformement come to the fore. In the discussion that follows, I frame these reflections into a broader discussion of Agambe's concept of the state of exception and argue that the EU-Turkey deal as an extraterritorial zone has been promoted by its EU signatories as a necessary state of exception. <coughs> For those of you who are not so familiar with Agambe's work, I'll just briefly state what his state of exception is about. In the first decades of the 20th century, Walter Benjamin of the Frankfurt School and Carl Schmitt developed the concept of the state of exception, under which the legal order is suspended. In his analysis of divine violence, that is the existence of a pure form of violence outside the law, Benjamin claimed that the exception is excluded from the juridical order by the sovereign. Schmidt argues if a country faced an existential threat to its integrity the sovereign power of the country possessed the authority to suspend the legal system and declare a state of exception. Thus for him the essence of sovereignty is understood to be a monopoly on the ability to decide on the exception. And therefore, the norm does not define the exception, but the exception defines the norm. Thus, Schmidt's significant intuition grounds the state of exception both within and beyond the law because it consists in the temporary suspension of the legal constraints on sovereignty. The decision on exception is above the normative framework, yet at the same time, The exception is precisely what defines the condition of possibility for the law to exist. We are thus left with a situation in which the normative order simply does not apply. For Agambe, the state of exception is the dominant paradigm of government in contemporary politics and focuses his analysis on the biopolitical (coughs) significance of exceptionalism as a widespread political device. Thus, the suspension of law affects human beings' lives. In the realm of politics, there is no distinction between the private life and the public sphere, the one characterizing life. In order to legitimize its control over the lives of its citizens, the sovereign power blurs the lines between the external and the internal. In this process, the human being is reduced to what Agambe defines as bare life. In other words, the sovereign has absolute authority over the human being, depriving the individual of the right to live. With a clear reference to the Nazi's concentration camps, Agambe defines the locus where people are stripped to a bare life as the camp in which Jews were denied the condition of human beings itself, and not only political rights. So for Agambe, politics is inherently biopolitical. So turning to the case under consideration today, we are witnessing unprecedented levels of antagonism and discrimination against migrants, both at the public and the political level. In the specific context of the EU-Turkey deal, This agreement has transformed human beings – we're talking about migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, children even – into political human currency, through which their rights are being suspended or exchanged for short-term political gains. As well as the EU-Turkey deal, there have been the joint way forward with Afghanistan, as well as migration compacts between the EU and Jordan and Lebanon. The EU plans to sign similar agreements with several other countries, including some that are considered severe violators of human rights. This, in spite of Amnesty International's stark warning to the EU that it must not replicate this deal with other countries, since this deal with Turkey has left thousands of refugees and migrants in squalid and dangerous living conditions. Thousands of refugees, including children, have in fact been left stranded in what I call a liminal condition. Dangerous, desperate, and seemingly endless limbo. In its 2017 briefing, A Blueprint for Despair, Amnesty International documents unlawful returns of asylum seekers to Turkey in a blatant violation of their rights under international law. I'm going to quote here from an interview that I carried out with one such young refugee. While in Syria, Rami had finished school up to the 10th grade and had also helped his uncle in his construction business for eight years. When I interviewed Rami at the youth club in Roskilde, he shared with me his witness accounts of the violence he saw with his own eyes from the start of the conflict in his adopted country because Rami's family is originally from Palestine and all the family members were living in an official Latakia Palestinian refugee camp. After telling me about his painful journey from Latakia in Syria to Denmark, I asked Rami how he feels now that he is safely in Denmark. His response was the following. Everything in my life is temporary. My permission to stay is temporary. My accommodation is temporary. The people I'm living with are temporary. If I'm walking outside and someone shouts to me terrorist, I just shrug it off. On an alarming scale, and across most interviewees that I have encountered during my fieldwork, there is indeed a very unsettling finding. Young refugees are living out their lives in what Agambe has termed a state of exception. For these young people, the international community's political will to bring to a halt the injustices back in their home countries is absent. Advocacy is weak in the face of power, and they are Right holders, but as right holders, even weaker, with de facto rightlessness becoming the new norm. As Baba concludes, human rights instruments have provided a framework for advancing claims for conceptualizing the entitlements of these children and for measuring the failure of current administrative practice. However, more often the rights enumerated are imperfect or inchoate, and awaiting realization. Children's rights are human rights that need much more thought, much more effort, and much more political will to become the reality they were designed to be. The correspondence between human rights provisions and rights respecting policies and practice has to be crafted, not assumed. The state still retains the monopoly on determining eligibility for meaningful access to rights despite the universalist aspirations of the human rights tradition. So the inconsistency that we observe in EU asylum and refugee policymaking, which has divided Member States into some who are sympathetic, concerned about protecting refugees, while others hostile and pressured to discipline asylum seekers, needs to be addressed head-on and not ignored. Justice has no shortcuts and human rights instruments must be transformed into live demands. Aid agencies have been clearly warning about the disastrous EU policies that are leading desperate refugees, including many children, who find themselves trapped in Greece to self-harm and even attempt suicide. Save the Children announced that 5,000 minors are living in appalling conditions, which in turn are propelling a a mounting mental health crisis. As carefully nuanced by two of my colleagues who are clinical psychologists, the presence of two risk factors multiplies by four, the probability of negative outcomes for refugee children. It multiplies by ten with the presence of four or more stress factors. Faced with appalling conditions and no hope of a safe home in sight, refugee children stranded on Greek islands and elsewhere and as young as nine are self-harming and 12-year-olds are attempting suicide, sometimes filming themselves in the act. There is also an increasing spike in drug and alcohol abuse by teenage refugees who are exploited by dealers in camps. Moreover, children suspended in camps across Greece are not living as normal children since their parents and families fear letting them play out of sight in case they are abused. This leaves us with a young generation highly traumatized and even more vulnerable. Unaccompanied children in particular are being forced to live in 24 hour survival mode as they sleep in shifts to try to stay safe. Others disappear or pay smugglers to leave the Greek islands. Unaccompanied children who made it to Denmark had this to say to me. Many of us escaped violence, war, conflict, only to end up in hell, they were talking about the camps, where we were made to feel more like animals than humans. We were made to feel we are nothing and that we don't have any control whatsoever over our lives anymore. I may be safe in Denmark now, but often I feel that nothing has a purpose anymore. I feel I'm going crazy, wandering around without knowing why. And I am one of the lucky ones. I made it to Denmark. So as Andreas Ring, a humanitarian representative of Save the Children, told me, the EU-Turkey deal was meant to end the flow of irregular migrants to Greece. But the question we need to ask is at what cost? So in conclusion, the catalyst of World War II propelled human rights into global consciousness and onto the global (laughs) stage. Everyone, by virtue of her or his humanity, is entitled to human rights, which exist to protect people from any government or other abuse and neglect. Rights limit what a state can do, and impose obligations for how a state must act. Yet, the EU-Turkey deal, prompted and promoted by the EU as a necessary state of exception, is turning away from these obligations. (laughs) By claiming to ensure a more secure Europe and as a result privileging the declared interests of the majority of European native populations, the EU's agreement with Turkey has transformed human beings, including children, into political currency, consequently suspending their rights for political gains. (laughs) Kenneth Roth, who is the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, does note it, in the cauldron of discontent, Certain politicians are flourishing and even gaining power by portraying rights as protecting only the terrorist suspect or the asylum seeker at the expense of the safety, economic welfare, and cultural preferences of the presumed majority. They scapegoat refugees, immigrant communities, and minorities. Truth is frequently causality. Nativism, xenophobia, racism, and Islamophobia are on the rise. So we are witnessing today as a result a serious deterioration in global human rights. Where states are unwilling to uphold human rights, they are laying the groundwork for six societies which in turn are active threats to human dignity. Global institutions such as the EU that itself emerged from the wreckage of World War II are now threatened with withdrawals and are fragmenting by the day. Moreover, this fragmentation has instigated the dissipation of the underlying values that necessitate the coming into being of such an association. This being exemplified most recently by the impeding closure of the Budapest-based Central European University by the Hungarian government. So, the question I would like to pose for us is which normative frame can protect human beings from this emerging chaos. The price has already been paid by far too many, including many innocent children who lost their lives at sea on their way to seek safety and shelter on European shores. These are complex issues with no doubt, with no easy solutions. But one thing is crystal clear, at least to my mind. The EU's current approach is failing, The EU must reaffirm its commitment to the refugee convention. In particular, it has to be made crystal clear. The EU does not want people turned back to likely prosecution. The challenges of a global refugee crisis require all EU member states to take a fair share of responsibility. When we focus specifically on refugee children, there is international consensus that putting children in immigration detention is against their best interests, and the violation of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It is high time for the EU to introduce legislation to permanently end the immigration detention of children in any settings which are funded, facilitated or supported by the EU. The EU must create a regional protection system that would allow boat turnbacks to be phased out and replaced with search and rescue operations. EU governments must work together to identify people at risk on the sea and ensure their safe arrival at agreed locations throughout the region. Critically, we should not be turning asylum seekers away to face new dangers. We should be connecting them to protection and support services. A rethink of the the EU's conundrum should look like safety on land and sea, children in schools, parents with basic working rights, and human beings with healthcare, wherever they need protection throughout the EU. This brings us back to Agambe's quote at the very beginning of my presentation. If EU member states are to refresh the normative identity of their supranational body, then its global power must be linked to the capacity of its institutions (coughs) and member states to guarantee rights to those in need, and those who are fleeing persecution, war and violence. What we do not want is to see Europe turning its back to its dark age, when certain selected groups of human beings were excluded from enjoying their rights as humans, and thereby plunged the continent back into some of its darkest hours. Thank you.
0: That was Professor Michelle Page from Roskilde University, Denmark. My name is Sandra Jacobsen, and this podcast was brought to you from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute and in International Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Stay tuned for more interviews regarding human rights issues on our website.